the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, sleek ships make shimmering shifts through pumpernickel skies, ruining the old god's hardtack. Dang. A crab of insectoid aliens and an epiphany of baby stars. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bainfree Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. We have part one of a two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon this time, discussing the fourth entry in his Kane Riordan science fiction series. This one is called Kane's Mutiny. In this one, Kane travels to a very forbidding planet to meet an alien species so weird its name can only be spelled in multiple consonant clusters. It's a really entertaining new entry in the series, and Chuck will tell us all about it. And, of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now, here's the news. We have new eARCs at the Bain eBooks website. Now, an eARC is the path a cliched meme travels from the receiver of a telephone or other listening device through the hindbrain, but not the frontal cortex, until it is blathered again out the mouth into the device voice pickup to be passed on like a parasite to unsuspecting populations. No, no, no. An eARC is an electronic advanced reading copy, which is an early version of a book we make available for you on BainEbooks.com. If you absolutely can't wait for your favorite book to be released, you can grab a copy, full of typos and all, a few months early on BainEbooks.com. Early, but they are full of um, the kind of things that uh, proofreaders will catch when we actually put the print book out. So you get the book uh, in your favorite series or whatever um, earlier, but you also get it with um, with some telling defects, if you want to call them that, or interesting, unique features, if you want to call them that. So what eARCs do we have available? Just out in eARC form is The Gathering Edge by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Hey, this is a series milestone as we welcome the 20th amazing entry in the nationally best-selling Leaden Universe series. The luck runs rough around Theo Waitley. People are trying to kill her and capture the self-aware intelligent ship Bechimo, uh, to whom Theo is bonded. Theo and her crew need a break, but when they retire to what Bechimo refers to as safe space, they find that things are leaking through from another universe and another time. In fact, whole spaceships are coming through, and one of those ships' crews may be members of Theo's ancient ancestral line. Now Theo has a choice to make. It seems that Bechimo's safe space is about to become deadly perilous. Also out is a really fun collaboration, The Gods of Sagittarius, by Eric Flint and Mike Resnick. In this one, the human race's most brilliant savant has become convinced that the race of ancient aliens known as the Old Ones possessed powers unknown to any modern intelligent species. He believes they had harness forces, which may well have been actual magic, giving the Old Ones the stature of gods. Now human adventurers and an alien species are on a collision course with the truth. Despite their many differences, only if they unite their forces do they stand any chance of surviving the coming encounter with the gods of Sagittarius. Earks for The Gathering Edge by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller and The Gods of Sagittarius by Eric Flint and Mike Resnick are now available at BaneEbooks.com. This is part one of a two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon discussing his new novel in the Kane Riordan series, Kane's Mutiny. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hello, Chuck. Hi, Tony. Chuck Gannon is the Compton Crook Award-winning creator of the Kane Riordan science fiction series. He's the co-author with Eric Flint of 1635 The Papal Stakes and 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Am I getting all this all the uh Ring of Fire books in that list? Yes, you did. 
Okay. And with Steve White, he co-authored two books in the long-running Starfire series, Extremist and Imperative. He's written stories set in David Weber's Honorverse and many other short stories. Chuck is a member of Sigma, the SF think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agency. He lives in Annapolis, Maryland. The first three books in the Kane Reorden series, Trial by Fire, Fire with Fire, and Raising Kane, were nominated for a Nebula Award. And now out at Booksellers Everywhere is Kane's Mutiny, book four in the Kane Reorden series. Chuck, Kane has come a long way since he awoke from cryo-suspension just three or four years ago in the series timeline. Can you kind of broadly bring us up to speed on where we are at the start of uh, Kane's Mutiny? Well, uh, if we uh, if we go from that moment of him waking up out of cryo-sleep, he, uh, he goes to Delta Pavanus III, finds evidence that there are, in fact, exosapiens, at least there were a long time ago. Turns out that uh, the neighborhood is not depopulated, and they uh, they sort of report in. Um, humanity goes, meets them. That turns out to be not the best thing. Uh, not because there was uh, not because it was an ambush in the in the military sense, but kind of an ambush in the political and diplomatic sense. Um, it's basically a, a, a kind of, I guess you could say, a uh, a very small future UN that has just all the sort of game playing and agendas that our own does. Um, and so there's the inevitable war, um, which uh, he he survives after becoming an unintended Trojan horse that helps resolve that conflict uh, as a as a human victory he is brought onward to uh into the re- counter campaign to one of the invaders homeworlds um the homeworld of the Aratkur who are if you will um they're described as sort of subterranean uh, horseshoe crab cockroaches um and mammalian no less um, where uh, actually he manages to stop their genocide, which was perhaps the end game of this war. In the process of so doing, he real he uh, uncovers that one of the three uh, species that were in fact uh, carrying out this invasion of Earth, the if you will, the ones that were working as advisors rather than participants, known as the Kator, who were thought to be. Uh, the most alien of all creatures living in a sort of ultra-cold environment, uh, large hot water tank, you know, something about the size of a water tank, uh, turn out, in fact, to be humans, um, and uh, humans who had been separated from our rootstock some very, very long time ago, um, which in the next book, which is a um, is our attempt to find allies, uh, the Slasrithi are pretty much the most friendly species we found, if a if quite enigmatic, and they essentially say, well, if you're going to, if, if we're going to have diplomatic relations, you actually kind of have to see us. you got to get to know us, um, not across the table, but by visiting our world, which turn out to be very strange, strange worlds with very unusual biota on them. And uh, it also turns out that uh, there is, in, in the best style of, I guess you could say, uh, uh, Alistair McLean always did this. There was always the, the, the mole inside the the organization, whether that was Guns of Navarone or Ice Station Zebra, well, you know, I only steal from the best, so uh, mm-hmm. if I have one or two in the uh, in this diplomatic mission, which is almost uh, completely destroyed, but uh, at the end of the day uh, manages to save enough of itself to essentially not only successfully complete its mission, but by surviving to complete its mission, shows that the Kator were behind this attempt at destruction as well. In in the course of which we learn a little bit more about the Kator, the survivors of whom have uh, taken a uh, realizing that that this ploy did not work and being outcasts from their own society, uh, take, decide to um, if you will uh, adopt another emergency ploy, which is very much related to where the book Cain's Mutiny begins, which is that uh, humans have returned. Uh, Kane and the and what's left of the diplomatic party have returned, and they learn that there's a problem in Hukruh space. The Hukruh, the Aratkur, and the Kator were the three antagonist species during the invasion of Earth. The Hukruh, by far the least technologically advanced and also by far the most overtly uh, aggressive of the group. And that is where uh, Kane et al. are going to have to go because there could be a very, very severe diplomatic incident brewing 
if somebody doesn't go and intercede, and that's Cain's job. Yeah. Um, where they're going is um, is the planet. Uh, uh oh, how do we say this? Thorstar. Thorstar, and that is um, that's a colony world. Um, can you sort of describe the the interspecies commonwealth or or what 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 do you call it um, and how it works in the vicinity of Earth? What we've gotten ourselves into, humanity, or not into yet? Um, so we haven't signed on. I don't think um, the it's it's called the Accords, and the Accords. There aren't really many races out there, and it's this is um, this is not galactic. It's a lot smaller in scale than that. It's about um, Earth has had has has had, I guess you could say, information drop that suggests that maybe the limit of explored or at least visited space is about 150 light years in, uh, radius out from about where Earth is. Uh, and the Accord occupies a fairly small volume of that space. Um, why that is, is left for uh, for later revelation. Uh, but that's where it is right now. And the, the member species, in addition to the Kator, who in the at the very end of the second book turn out to be humans, which is going to be a problem later on down the line, in addition to the fact that they are mystifyingly um, antagonistic towards us, uh, the Aratkur, who are not particularly warlike, subterranean, they re- and, uh, and the Hukruk, who are these... Uh, they stand about six and a half to six and three quarters feet. They are heavily built. They are very tough hombres, and uh, and they have a, a culture to boot. Uh, the other two species out there are the Slothriti. They're very different. Um, they are uh, polytactic, which means that sort of like ants, although they're nothing. They are physically, physio- physiologically, not at all like ants. Um, as a matter of fact, some uh, some people have described them as ostrich chimps uh, because they have ostrich-like necks with small heads that aren't really heads. They're sensor clusters, and there's a sort of gibbon-like body. And uh, but it, but all those are again, they're they're really they're crude terrestrial analogies for what the the actual alienness of the of the physiology is. And they are like, like as I was saying, they're polytactic, which means like ants, all the same species, but you'll have a, a bunch of different castes, which actually have significant physical differences. That is true also for the, for the Slasrithi. Uh, they are as non-aggressive, you might say, as the Chukruk are aggressive. And the last, the ones who also provide the group called the custodians of the accord, who make sure that the rules are followed, more or less, are the Dornani. The Dornani are by far the oldest of all the races, and they are, uh, for anybody who's read the first book, you'll know that they are a connector to an earlier time in the history of this stellar cluster that goes back 10,000 and more years. So, and that's a, that's a part of the series which really hasn't, uh, hasn't been, uh, I guess you could say, that, that layer of the onion has not been peeled back yet. Quite frankly, because Era hasn't had the time. Um, we've been too busy saving our saving our own bacon. And um, the so the, the the basics of the accord are that it is non-aggression, non-interference, and uh, but it isn't really an alliance in any way. It's a sort of group modus vivendi. So um, Earth hasn't formally joined yet, right? We're holding out for some, for. Strategic reasons, or, or is humanity part of it? Nope, we have not, uh, and that creates some consternation amongst the Dornani. Uh, the Dornani really, the, the Dornani uh, collective, which is the specious organization of the Dornani, their their representation to the Accord itself, was hoping we would for a whole variety of reasons not the least of which is they're really tired of being the custodians, and they're really not doing a very good job about it. And there are reasons for that, which which you get hints of in in all three of the first books, and even then again the fourth book, but will become very much unfolded in the fifth book, Mark of Cain. Because whereas the first three books have had us essentially visit, or I should say now four books, will have had us visit 
most of these species to some degree in their in their home environments and and tur- turn essentially first contact into deep contact. The ones we haven't really met yet are the Dornani, and that is who we meet in Mark of Cain. And I don't think it would be at all, you know, telling tales out of school to say, I can't wait to write that book. That <laughs> book is, uh, I, that one I've had my eye on for a long time. I get all of them, but this one is one of those sort of big idea where you are really, you're encountering a, a race that has been around for a very long time, has a very different perspective, and has reached some points in its own evolution, which I think really are in connection with what I like best in science fiction is, as you know, it's, it's represented as a single word, sense of wonder. And, uh, and this is definitely a, uh, a novel which has considerable depths of sense of wonder. So um, we have not joined, despite the fact that the Accord, and there are a bunch of reasons for that. And that changes over time. At the end of the fourth book, uh, which so this is one of those spoilers you can't give out. It turns out that there were lots of good reasons for us not to join. Uh, initially, it's because we um, the 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 accord is is in is in a state of almost disrepair after the war that our entry triggers. Uh, it's really it, there aren't a, there aren't a, even enough almost voting powers left. Uh, we would sort of be written in. Our membership would always be questionable as to whether it was really done by by essentially executive fiat by the uh, by the um, by the Dornani themselves, the custodians, or whether it was a, a genuine broad-based admission. And also, the other thing that's kind of important is that we are still right now a protected species, which means if there are certain laws we don't break, we don't have to obey the other accords. And one of the one of the accords is that exploration and exploitation of planets is done according to, if you will, preset vectors through space. This is to make sure that the, spe- the species of the accord do not run afoul of each other, don't step on each other's uh, expansionistic toes, as the case may be. Well, we don't have to follow that. This was not something that the writers, the the crafters of the accord, ever really foresaw. But we we see it and we say, you know what? We're gonna um, we're gonna we're gonna pass on that whole uh, on that whole accord thing right now, and we're gonna use these these much longer range ships that we've taken as a result of the end of the war in the second book, and we are going to essentially go on a bit of a land grab. Uh, the, the the rationale behind it being uh, in the first war they were they were at Earth within essentially a month between the start of the campaign and the time that they actually had control of orbital space at Earth was less than a month. And our our strategic thought was, that can't happen again. We need more buffer. We need more more backyard, too. And so that's one of the reasons why we have not joined the Accord at this point. Well, tell us us more about Kane. Um, He's a polymath, uh, I think you've said. What is... What is it about this characteristic that seems to always put him in the center of the action um, of the books and just the center of the action of humanity right now? He has the skill of being a jack-of-all-trades intellectually as well as um, in other ways, right? Well, yes, um, and and perhaps not exactly your classic action hero in that unlike a, a lot of action heroes come with a military background. Uh, he comes to the book, uh, books with military sensibility. He is essentially a, a defense analyst, and he's reported on defense, a, you know, defense analyses as a sort of analytical writer and things like that. And he has, in the course of that, had a lot of contact and even done a little bit of training just to know how, but he is not from a, um, uh, a military background. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about Kane's character as well. Um, he's he is um, he's not exactly a smart aleck, but he is um, not one to suffer fools gladly. Sometimes. Um, yeah, I guess you could say that. Although I, I always in in the course of the series, I'm always sort of finding that Kane is biting his tongue. Yeah, I mean, he's a negotiator too. I mean, I'm not saying that he's um, he's. He's like some Ahab or something. 
No, but I think one of the things, and, and we'll probably touch on this maybe as as we get into talking about some of the other, for instance, characters in, in this in this most recent book, like Yargrau, um, going back to the notion of his being a polymath and it puts him at the center of the action, it really, it really only puts him at the center of the action in the first book. And the reason for that is because all of a sudden we have a first contact scenario. Well, you know, there isn't exactly, you don't, you, you, you don't find that in the what ad. You know, well, let's, let's post an ad for a guy who, or a gal who'll be good with first contact. Nope, that's, that's pretty much not a, a known job description. So, uh, to some degree, it's a case of him being in the wrong place at the right time. And also having, uh, as you said, being a jack of all trades, one of the things that a, a polymath tends to do is they tend to think and see the world paradigmatically. In other words, they don't tend to accept conventional uh, roles for conventional objects. As somebody says at one point, you and I see a screwdriver, he sees that, he sees a pendulum bob, he sees a weapon, he sees a paperweight, he sees a wedge, he sees all of these things. And that's one of the things that polymaths tend to do. Uh, they tend to be, um, they can tend to be idiosyncratic at times because, because they're not, they're, they're not functioning with the same sort of set equivalencies. This object does that thing. This concept is useful in this situation. Um, polymaths will tend to think paradigmatically. So will this pattern we see in biology actually apply to sociology? Does that apply to understanding psychology, et cetera, et cetera? It's the same way that you see with da Vinci, for instance, that he, the, the seamless integration, if you will, of an eye that could dissect the, the, the wings of a bird in flight becomes the one that then can try to represent that in terms of engineering design, but then also writes about it and can write about it with the focus on the beauty of bird flight. This is, this is somebody who's taking, you know, taking things that would normally be seen in one frame of reference and, and migrating that reference throughout all the other fields that might apply. That's one of the things that, that makes him also in the first contact scenario, the very first of the first contact scenarios, indispensable. He is less moored, less strongly moored to human preconceptions. That allows him to hear and to see what's going on in react with the, with the other species and not necessarily be filtering it through an inevitably human lens. Or at least if he is, he's aware that that's what he's doing. So while that's important the first time out, and by the way, in the first book, is you could arguably say, is when he's most successful, given the task he's given. And that was always intentional, uh, because the further away he gets from his original comfort zone, the more he is, he's encountering, you know, newcomer syndrome, where success is, you know, the ability to control the situation is sort of slipping away from him. So while he's learning more skills, he also tends not to have the same sort of initial high success level that he did. But once he's, of course, been successful in that first contact scenario, well, now he's the go-to guy because they look around and they say, well, who's done first contact? Well, we've got one guy. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. so, all right. Now, as time goes on, the people who are traveling with him are getting some of that cred as well. Uh, but in these first two or three books, the reason he's he is sort of the first person in is because they say, well, who do we know can do this? Well, we've only got one person we absolutely know. Well, guess what? So that's that's kind of how I would say his, his polymath nature gets him in the door. And then it helps him stay there because it's that same sort of not tied to conventional perspective that helps him very often in, uh, if you will, unraveling some of the intentional mysteries and some of just the mysteries of we've never seen this before, what the heck does this mean, that he encounters along the way. But uh, it is increasingly just simply because he's done it that puts him in the center. He's also very, very loyal and courageous as well, of course, which is a cool part of his character. So, uh, well, speaking of the first contact stuff or the contact, um, so Kane has arrived at the planet uh, Turksar with a, a Navy ship and uh, a human ship and several accompanying vessels. And he's got with him the Slathrithi ambassador, um, who we, we got to know quite well in the last book, Raising Cain, uh, Ash, I believe. Yithriash. Um, yes, 
he was pretty fascinating the way he understood and, and kind of learned to capitalize on the Slothrisi's weird characteristics. Um, can you tell us about his character a little and, and get us into what they are trying to accomplish on Turksar? So what Yithri um, Aash is really not there at Turksar much to accomplish Slothrisi objectives per se, except for the fact that they overlap human objectives, which is, we just finished a war, let's not have another one starting up. And that's what they're there to prevent. They have heard uh, radio chatter, I, I'm going to put it uh, anachronistic radio chatter, uh, on the uh, the um, <laughs> colony world of Turksar, which indicates, or would seem to indicate, that there are humans present on that planet possibly conducting something that sounds like combat operations against the locals. This is this is not only uh, untoward and alarming, it is frankly thought to be impossible. The reason for this is that if you were to look at the maps in the books, which, by the way, are exacting recreations of the actual arrangements of the stars uh, in, a, in our own stellar neighborhood, uh, the, the shift range of human ships cannot have gotten them to this planet. Couldn't have been done. So how are there humans there? And they don't sound like any humans that would have been dispatched from a conventional unit, and yet there they are. And if if this continues to go on, um, this could, of course, be uh, a, could be seen as prelude to invasion, uh, raiding, whatever the case may be. The Hukruk are uh, temperamentally, not necessarily, uh, you know, o- overly eager to make those sort of distinctions, and we could have yet more problems. So the Slasriti and the human objectives in this case are the same, which is we need to go there, we need to find what humans are doing this, and we need to take them away, whatever the circumstances are. Uh, we, there's no way to know what they are. So it's a it's a it's a it's a mission that has an objective. But the amount of advanced intelligence is, uh, I would say, from uh, from anybody in that field's professional standpoint, shockingly and dangerously limited, um, and that of course creates much of the much of the drama and much of the mystery to be uh, to be unraveled over the course of Kane's musing. So that's their objective arriving there. In terms of the Slasrithi, uh I guess you could say leveraging the peculiarities of their species uh, to. to to give the listeners a little bit of a sense of what that is, as comes up at one point in trying to understand them, um, this, this, the Yitri Aash, who is, uh, they, to try to create equivalence between their, if you will, political control or, or uh, civic control positions and ours is almost meaningless. No, it is almost meaningless. He is what's called a prime rationator. And that makes him kind of potential provincial governor, diplomat, um, uh, you know, minister plenipotentiary, uh, translator, head liaison. It's a, it's a role that really we don't have. But in the course of trying to get us to understand the Slasriti and why they need the humans for their, if you will, our aggressive instincts, uh, but our managed aggressive instincts, he, he comes up with this example. You have what's called a fight or flight reflex. What if you didn't have the fight? What if your only reflex was flight? And he says, that's us. And we can think, we can arrive at some of the solutions you come to, but it's never reflexive for us. Actually, you know, as he points out, neurologically, we have slightly better reaction times than you do. But the problem is, we just don't think that way. And we've also learned that there's a part of their species that used to think that way more than the rest of them, but that one has been filtered out. And one of the things that happened in the last book, Raising Cain, is that they are undertaking, if you will, a desperate mission to try to reintroduce that taxon, that subtaxon, uh, which is called the indagator, or if you will, the pioneer or the searcher uh, 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 taxon. And um, so uh, this is... Uh, this actually puts humans, therefore, in the very unusual circumstance of feeling like, wait a minute, so what are we, the muscle? You know, you're the brains and we're the muscle? How does that work? And uh, it's a, it, it is an ongoing 
uh, dynamic that is uh, it, it it gets into a lot of the things that makes La Cerithi very alien from us, um, and I think also challenges the notion that the the human worldview is necessarily the best the logical or the inevitable. Uh, the the have a pretty coherent, and I think it, it pretty much sticks together, evolutionary history. One of the things I do when I write an alien species is I, I not only look at the planet and the, the biomes in which they evolve, I have a dawn of intelligence story. Uh, I've referred to this a number of times, uh, which is, for instance, for humans, I think the best dawn intelligence story I've ever seen is in 2001 Space Odyssey, when we see the ape moon watcher who discovers the bone as tool, weapon, et cetera, et cetera, and we sort of get that idea, this is how things change. This is where we learn the skills that put us on the, the path of dominant evolution in our biosphere. The Slastriti have one, too. It's very different. I'm not going to take up our time here to go into what it is, but trust me, it's very different. And that difference comes all the way down through into trying to figure out, you know, the Slasrithi perspective is, but from the macro perspective, it makes more sense that we do what we're good at and you do what you're good at. And the humans are saying, yeah, but we're all about individual rights as well. And you're telling us that our children have to die because they're fated to that and you're not. So this is the sort of this is the sort of stuff where both people are coming to the table honestly, and yet there are these these considerable divisions that are going to have to be negotiated as the series goes on. Yeah, well, you have um, one of the things about all the the books in the series is this care you take in really um, differentiating and creating the species. It's really it really is fun to um, to get to know them. There's a lot of that in uh, we we learn a lot about the Slatherici in um, raising Cain. There's so much about Cain's mutiny we can't discuss without throwing throwing some major major spoilers out there. Um, there's a lot of very cool and unexpected stuff going down on Turksar, and it, it involves a lot of war fighting. Um, at the start of the book, we meet one of the Hukrur Hukruk that is uh, who is. Not such a victim of their caste system that he can't see outside the box. And, and explain to us a little bit about their caste system and and sort of, if you can, situate Yargruok, uh, our character, our uh, sympathetic character within it. So Yargruok is a um, is from the new families. What the new families are, uh, this requires a, a, a brief trip into history. So the um, the Hukruk are highly distinct in terms by by gender, um, and that has to do with the fact that they are an extremely uh, combat-oriented society. Property is can be is always potentially exchanged by challenge, although challenge is not always physical combat. Um, it, as with us, in, in many of our old dueling societies, the person who tendered the challenge. Uh, got the got the right to get satisfaction, but the person who took the challenge, received and agreed to it, usually was able to decide the weapons or even the nature of that the challenge takes. That's what that also holds true amongst the Hukruk. And they have a very broad allowance of what might constitute a challenge. So not everything is warlike. Um, and you have to be very careful because if you if you lose a challenge, your possessions are forfeit which has a tendency to make sure that the people who are doing most of the challenges, if their families agree to it, it usually means they don't have a lot to lose. Uh, so there are, there are things that keep the society from constantly coming apart at the scene. But uh, the unfortunate, and this was quite in, intentional on my, on my part, um, this puts the, the, uh, the, the, the females of the species, and it is, of, of all the species in the book, they are by far the most like us in terms in a whole bunch of ways. One of which is that you're looking at a uh, at a, 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 a heterosexual uh, reproductive model, and uh, the the therefore population is key to power. Population therefore means how many how many individuals do you have who are producing population, and consequently you have. Uh, what would be to uh, a human perspective uh, a horrifically uh, sort of primitive uh, and oppressive uh, reaction towards females in this society. Now, they are utterly protected 
They are absolutely, uh, they're not part of the challenge structure. Uh, they, it is considered a, uh, an egregious act that warfare should spill over and hit what are called in their caste system the unhonored, which are those who have not yet come of age and, and any female. Um, and, and it is highly protective of them. It is, it actually reveres both of those in a lot of ways, but is very, very, is, is highly, highly restrictive, uh, on, on what they may do. Now, the, this, this has gone on for many, many thousands of years. They are probably one of the societies with the least, uh, the least frequent, uh, uh, if, what I would call sort of sine wave of change running, running through their, their society. Um, but uh, one of the things that began happening with their age of industrialization is that so many families were then defeated so profoundly in wars that their families were shattered, they were not absorbed into other families, and they became part of a structure called the new families. The new families uh, have a very different attitude towards towards sex and gender. They have a very different attitude towards role. They have a very different attitude towards property. And they are seen as an underclass by what are called the old families who are, if you will, the uh, the sort of representatives and, and hierarchs of these older, traditional, uh, highly honor-bound, highly challenge-oriented uh, sort of culture that that's come up for, for thousands and thousands of years. It is by no means a uniform culture, but uh, it is a it is a culture in which it is a survival of the fittest, and the fittest tend to impose their notions, their language, uh, their uh, their most of the ways that they, if you will, pattern their society are imposed upon those who have been who have been conquered. So there is a bit of a tendency just from that process to create a kind of a, a much greater sense of cultural homogeneity across the entirety of the species than you would, for instance, than we observe on Earth. Um, uh, Jörg Graup is a member of the New Families, uh, so he was not brought up. He was not to, uh, you know, not a fortunate son, and uh, although he was very, very gifted, so he got to, he was sort of pulled out and sent back to the home world to be educated. However, the stigma of being new family continues with him, and he's also considered something of a runt. He's only like about 6'3 or 6'4. So um, so he's considered a very, very small hook run. Well, what he special, winds up specializing in, and it's how he gets involved in the series, is he's made the study of humans his specialty, because whereas we have been sending our signals out into space willy-nilly ever since we got the capability to do broadcasts, the Hukruk, uh did not, and were very and detected ours, and began to after having some difficulty figuring out how to decipher it or you know essentially modulate the signal to get useful information. Uh, we became an object of remote study via our media. What, there's a moment of terror if you think about it <laughs> uh, that we should be judged by our television and radio. Uh, but that's what he does, and he learns languages that way, and that is why he is included on the diplomatic mission in the very first book. And his position is advocate to the unhonored, which means that the alien species, from the Hukruk standpoint, the alien species need somebody to speak for them and to actually make respectful approach to the honored, the the first voice of uh, of the what's called the Hukruk Patra Juridica. And uh, that's how he sort of gets involved. He is again a little bit like a little bit like Cain. Uh, he's an out of the box thinker. He is able to see the world through a set of lenses that are not innately those of his own culture. And um, this is one of the themes, I guess you could say, that recurs with a lot of the individuals who are the ambassadors of the contact individual. Same thing for the Arad Kur, that they are very often, to some degree, on the level of almost being outcasts in their own society, because uh, they are the ones who are likely to say, wait a minute, have we really looked at this the way they see it? Well, in times of stress, that can be seen as sounding disloyal or like you're a collaborationist or an appeasementist, but that is actually kind of the perspective you need to be able to assess your potential adversary or newcomer, as the case may be. So that's one of the constants that sort of follows through the series. That, and that kind of puts him under suspicion within his... It seems like every encounter between uh, the uh, Hukruk 
are um, is is a dominance and or a uh, it sort of a a, a pick on display. <laughs> First and foremost, it's like this dominance ritual, and then maybe a communication takes place, and so he's he's constantly having to work his way around his um, officious uh, um, up um, overseers, right? Absolutely, and uh, the the, dif- the situation is particularly difficult on Torxar, which is his old homeworld. But he hadn't been back there for a long time because he was educated on the homeworld, uh, the, the the species world of origin, I should say. Um, there is a situation there where um, the old respected, if you will, patriarch, uh, the 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 voice, as they're called, is dying, and uh, there's some interesting reasons why he is that creates doubled resentments for humans. Um, and he's worried about his son, uh, who's actually the second son, the first one was killed in the war, uh, really having the authority to take over. And that son is, in fact, very aware of that. And so that in addition to what would be the normal sort of dominance contest and and sort of check display and, and proof uh, that operates inside of Kukruf, uh, society between the different between the different clans and, and houses. Uh, this is more so because he is he's he's got that extra bit of of discomfort and uncertainty. Am I really going to be able to step into the old man's shoes here and maintain control? And if I don't, um, I'll probably get challenged, and at some point I'll lose, and then they'll take they'll take everything away from us, our my family, my moiety, as the case may be. And so he's got it. He, he has it. He has a sort of extra measure of concern with asserting dominance. And and while Yargrauf is not at all eager to sort of be the the nail that sticks up out of the rug, no one else is really willing to see an alternative explanation for why there are humans on Torxar who seem to be raiding them. And that is uh, that creates a sort of uh, you know creates a conflict he'd rather not have, but he can't step away from because if he does, he feels that the results could be just that much worse. That was part one of a two-part interview with Charles E. Gannon discussing his new book in the Kane Reorden series, Kane's Mutiny. Part two and the conclusion will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend, the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Daniel awakened in his hammock. He didn't know where he was, neither what planet he was on nor what he was doing there. Here. Daniel, said Adele's voice, bringing him fully alert and back to his present in the conference room, where he had slung a hammock instead of returning to his cubicle aboard the Kaisha. Hang on, said Hogg. His feet slapped the floor, which was sheeting like the walls and roof. Daniel's eyes adapted to the faint light from beneath the eaves of the quickly constructed building. Twenty-centimeter-high poles from the top of the wall supported the peaked roof. The roof overhang covered the gap, but it allowed in air and enough light to be noticeable in the otherwise complete darkness. Daniel sneezed. His nose was stuffy from residues of the freshly welded plastic and the stabilizers mixed with the mud pumped into the gap between the sheeting. 
When the mud hardened, the sandwich would be weatherproof and excellent insulation, but for the moment, it was still curing. Hogg shut the door open and unhooked one end of his hammock. He had slung it across the doorway from eye bolts set into the walls. Daniel got up also. His hammock was across a back corner of the room, one bolt in either wall. He was still fully dressed, though he'd taken off his boots. There was a jury-rigged power line from the fusion bottle in the headquarters dugout, but the light switch was near the door. Get the lights, Daniel said as he bent to slip on his boots. The three glow strips on the underside of the roof flickered to what was painful brilliance for a moment. Adele entered ahead of a burly Pantelarian sergeant. A spy? Does she have agents inside Haplinger? Captain Leary, she said, reverting to formality now that he was awake. This is Commissioner Arnaud, who wants to discuss his future with you. Daniel laughed, then sneezed again. An Ischian freighter had landed just after sundown. Ozone from its thrusters still lingered in the humid air. Most of the ships in Brotherhood Harbor were waiting for at least a formal armistice before they hopped to Hablinger with building materials. But the Ischians had their own reasons for wanting to arrive immediately. Have a seat, Commissioner. Daniel said as he pulled out a chair for himself from the table. When I saw you, I was only mildly surprised to learn that Lady Mundy had an agent within the Pantelarian Expeditionary Force. I was much more surprised when she announced who you really are. Like the buildings, the furniture had been manufactured from plastic tubes and sheeting in the past few hours. It was sturdy and serviceable, though it made the steel stampings of a warship look like aesthetic masterpieces by contrast. Arnaud remained standing, his hands gripped together at waist level. I've come to accept your terms, Leary, he said. I haven't stated any terms, Daniel said. He frowned slightly. Though if Lady Mundy has, then... She has not, Arnaud said. When I have a negotiating position, I negotiate. When I do not, as now, I throw myself on the victor's mercy. State your terms, sir, and I will accept them. He swallowed and added... I hope the lives of my troops can be spared, as your initial announcement stated. Daniel pulled out a second chair and turned it to face his, then sat down. I think we can do better than that, Commissioner, he said. But please sit. I don't want to look up at you, and I sure don't want to stand. It's been a long day. Yes, said the Pantelarian. It has. Arno sat. He tried to brace himself on the chair back, but collapsed onto the seat when he was halfway down. He had looked worn but alert initially. Now his face had a greenish pallor, which was only partially caused by the bioluminescent glow strips. The door closed behind Hogg. He and Tovera had stepped outside. Adele was in a chair beside the door, her data unit on her lap. Except for the occasional flicker of her wands, she was as unobtrusive as the dull pink surface of the plastic walls. First, Daniel said. He had rehearsed this meeting, but he hadn't expected it to come so suddenly or here. I've arranged with Ischia to repatriate your troops. With the Monfiori clan, technically, but this matter is going to require much greater resources than they themselves can provide. That's to everyone's benefit. As the Monfioris become benefactors of all Ischia, instead of being wealthy profiteers in the midst of hostile neighbors. Arnaud pursed his lips. That will be an expensive proposition, he said. I can't commit the council to paying for it. The Pantelarian council, that is. He shook his head angrily, glaring at the floor. In fact, I don't think that anything I appeared to support would pass a council vote. I'm telling you this because I don't want to see my troops sold into slavery to pay the cost of their transportation. His mouth worked as though he were about to spit, but he swallowed instead. Not that I'm likely to survive long enough to see the final outcome. Daniel made a dismissive gesture with his left hand. One thing at a time, he said. There was a console of reasonable capacity at the other end of the table, but he didn't think he needed it now. The transportation costs will be covered by trade concessions, but that's in the future. The most immediate question I see, he grinned. It was true that the Monfioris gained in the long term by being forced to share their profits with their neighbors. This plan, too, benefited all parties, which pleased Daniel for its neatness as well as other virtues. Is what you would consider the best conceivable outcome to the present situation, from your viewpoint? Asylum for me on Cinnabar. 
Arnaud said. The rest of my force returns to Pantelleria with an undertaking by the council not to retaliate against them, guaranteed by the Cinnabar Senate. He shrugged. If you can arrange that, he said, you'd be welcome to my firstborn if I had children. I could manage a nephew or two. Despite the joking bravado, Daniel could see real hope in the Pantelarian's expression. It was easy to like Arnaud. He had come himself instead of sending an envoy, and his first concern was for his troops. You've told me what you consider the best practical outcome, Daniel said. But that's not what I asked you. What do you consider the best conceivable outcome? Arnaud's face hardened slightly. You surrender Corsera to me, he said after a moment. Which, to be honest, I don't believe you have the power to do, but you've surprised me in the past. He nodded toward Adele. You and Lady Mundy have. Wouldn't you rather be ruler of Pantelleria? Daniel said. He smiled more broadly. Arno pushed his fingertips together hard at chest height. Explain what you mean, he said. Will your troops support you, Daniel said. I... Think they would support me a long way, yes, Arnaud said. If I get them out of this mess alive, most of them would support me well beyond common sense. But I couldn't conquer Pantelleria with this force. I couldn't even conquer Corsera, though. His eyes narrowed with a thought. The plan Lady Mundy tricked me with. That might have worked. I still think it would have worked, and she said it was your plan. Are you offering to support me, Leary? Daniel laughed as though the offer was a joke. At the words, though, his mind began considering what it would take and what resources he might be able to raise on Cinnabar. No. Before he could speak, Adele said, I can assure you as an official of Cinnabar, Commissioner Arnaud, that the Republic's government would forbid any action by a citizen which would precipitate renewed war with the Alliance as the armed overthrow of Pantelleria by an RCN officer would certainly do. I wasn't going to do it anyway, Daniel thought. His momentary irritation melted away. But that's an aspect of the business that I hadn't considered. He grinned at Adele, then said to Arnaud, No, you couldn't conquer Pantelleria. But according to my sources, Adele, the Council of Twenty isn't very popular. Things were all right just after Garantor Pora's thugs were thrown out. But right now, a lot of folks seem to think that the council is a bunch of rich people screwing every piaster they can get out of everybody else. Not so? Go on, Leary, Arnaud said, his face almost blank. But keep in mind that I'm not exactly a man of the people myself. I've improved the family fortune considerably, thanks to investment by Bantry Holdings in some measure. His sudden smile was half amused, half mocking. But we Arnaud's are still one of the oldest families on Pantelleria. You may have more popular support than you believe, Commissioner, Adele said. Your shipyard is regarded as a good place to work, and you're a great deal more approachable than many of your nouveau riche fellows on the council. Your popularity with the public is one of the reasons the rest of the Council has been trying to arrange the defeat of your expeditionary force as soon as you lifted from Pantelleria. It certainly seems like that, Arnaud said. You know, I've had to use my own money to pay the troops for the past three months. The Council hasn't transferred money into the expedition's account. I can show you internal communications among your fellows, Adele said though referring to the other counselors as your fellows is probably a misnomer. But that doesn't matter now. No, said Daniel. Arnaud was seated between him and Adele, so the commissioner was snapping his head around like a spectator at a tennis match. Ordinary people don't have to support you so long as they don't oppose you, as the residents of Corsera most certainly have been doing. I have provided Captain Leary with a breakdown of the private troops in the service of your other counselors. Adele said. He is convinced that the force available to you would be sufficient to defeat. You'll scare them into taking their badges off and hiding, Daniel said, or simply overawe them, Adele went on, nodding. And your forces aren't simply those you brought to Corsera, Commissioner, Daniel said, leaning forward. There are other troops here who would be more than happy to follow you to Pantelleria, to go back in many cases. He and Adele were selling Arnaud on their plan. 
It was a good course for the Pantellarian, but it was the only course which would also accomplish all of Daniel's objectives. Arnaud blinked and stiffened. No, he said. You mean the exiles, don't you? I won't do that. The Self-Defense Regiment and the Navy of Free Corsera, Daniel said, keeping his voice genially calm which in the past have been paid by exiles, I believe, but that needn't continue to be the case, and the Corsairan garrison, whose members will be particularly willing to leave here. Their commander, Colonel Bourbon, is both competent and honest. Look, I know the people, the families mostly, who bolted here when the alliance pulled off of Pantelleria, Arnaud said. I don't have problems with them, no more than usual anyway. I was in pretty tight with Pora's last administrator myself, to tell the truth but I'm not going to have a bloodbath back at home or a return to Alliance control. That's what they'll want, some of them. What most of them want, said Adele, is a return of their property on Pantelleria, and revenge against the political enemies who forced them into exile and expropriated that property, of course. But none of them, and not all of them together, can force through that agenda over your opposition. A computer-synthesized voice would have had more warmth. It would have been programmed to seem human. Adele didn't bother to do so. And at that, her cold, precise delivery gave the words the solid certainty of a stone wall. You're buying internal peace for your planet, Daniel said. That's a very good return for simply giving back the property of fellow citizens. The Council of Twenty had a good opportunity to bring Pantelleria together when the Alliance left. Instead, you simply made yourselves richer. You did, Commissioner. Arnaud's immediate response was an angry glare. Then he coughed a laugh and said, Point taken. The silver lining in this is that because the spoils were divided pretty much among council members, it'll be relatively easy for us to correct our mistake, although... His eyes went unfocused as his mind leaped to a different thought. Not all of my colleagues will see what we did as a mistake. The Alliance administrators had us at each other's throats all the time they were in charge. You can say we should have done better when they left, but what happened to most of the exiles was no more than justice for what they'd done to others. All the more reason to stop doing Garantor Pora's work for him, I would think, snapped Adele. And your colleagues don't have 5,000 troops with combat experience, Daniel said. Don't sell your force short, Arno. No, they're not a land force commando. But they've trained together, they've been shot at, and they've shot back. That puts them in a whole different class from what anybody else on Pantelleria has obeying his orders. Look, said Arnaud. He stood up abruptly. Look, I don't want to be dictator of Pantelleria. I don't want to be a penny antipora myself. Then don't be, said Adele. She didn't raise her voice, but her words snapped like a whip. The Council of Twenty was supposed to be a transition to the elected assembly that ruled Pantelleria before you were absorbed into the alliance. Go back and tell your colleagues that the council is going to hold elections for a new assembly in three months' time. But, Arnaud said, but nothing, Daniel said. You've got 5,000 veteran votes for the proposition, and everybody on the planet except maybe a few of your colleagues will support the idea. And if any other councillors really want to make an issue of it, put them in jail for a few days. You might find that more of the council is on your side than you expect, Adele said. According to my information, Pantelleria had been a major alliance ally during the war. Mistress San's array of spies there obviously hadn't been disbanded when the Treaty of Amiens was signed. Some of the minor councillors are concerned at the chance of civil war between their more powerful colleagues, and the smarter counselors, Adele's smile was the visual equivalent of her clipped tone. Not a majority, I fear. The smarter counselors, as I said, are concerned about revolution if things don't change. Both concerns are valid, even if Alliance agents don't work to increase their likelihood, which is also a valid concern. Lady Mundy and I have seen revolutions, Daniel said. We've seen the next thing to revolution on Cinnabar, and it was the blessing of heaven that it wasn't the real thing. If you go home and knock a few of the harder heads together, you'll be doing everyone on Pantelleria a favor. Including the people who curse you every day till they die, said Adele, because they don't have your good sense. They also don't have your army, Daniel said. 
So long as you're satisfied with being rich and powerful, my bet is that your rich, powerful colleagues will come to believe that you're offering a better alternative than hanging from a lamppost. Now, are you willing to try? Arnaud gave Daniel a lopsided smile and sat down again. I'd been wondering what I was going to do with myself on Cinnabar, he said. I guess that on balance, I'd rather go back to Pantelleria and straighten things out. I knew something had to be done before I brought the army here, and from what you tell me, things haven't gotten better. He took a deep breath. All right, Leary, what's the next step? The next step, Daniel said, is that we tell Hogg and Tovera to let in the Corsiran leaders and Giorgio Monfiori. I'm sure that Lady Mundy summoned them while we've been talking. Adele nodded agreement and said, I have. Her smile was almost that of a normal person. We've got a great deal of negotiating to do, Daniel said, rising to walk to the door. But Corsera and Pantelleria both will gain from it. And with luck, so will Ricard Cleveland, who's the reason I came here in the first place. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to Chris Ferracchio and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a crankcase built of quantum virtual gears and oiled by the sweet crude dripping from the Milky Way. Plus the thanks and praise and honks of the California freeway's worth of grateful readers for Charles E. Gannon, author of Kane's Mutant. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 